Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thanks for subscribing, downloading, rating. We appreciate it as always. Let people know about the program. That's how we grow as a community. Um, coming up on this week's show, as the world is scrambling for energy in the midst of a global crisis, China is working on an experimental new type of nuclear reactor that uses thorium instead of uranium as its fuel. But in the past few months, it's gone quiet. We're going to find out why, hopefully, and whether or not thorium might be the answer for a cleaner, greener future in a few minutes' time. Uh, first, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Jasmine Fairfield from the University of Galway and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Our first story, Jess, has to do with asteroid smashing. That's right. This is an amazing story, I think, really capturing the attention of people watching science from around the world. Um, basically, NASA launched this probe um, last year, which came to its destination this week, uh, the twin asteroid system of Didymos and Dimorphos. And basically, in an Armageddon-like twist, they managed to crash a spacecraft into the smaller of those two asteroids. So this is a rock only about 160 meters in diameter that was 11 million kilometers from Earth. So that's like a tenth of the distance to Mars. Um, and basically, they flew this, the, it's called the Double Asteroid Redirection Probe, or uh, DART. And basically, they flew out to this asteroid system and <laughs> crashed into the smaller one. Uh, and the goal here is to see, can we use this as a method to avoid asteroid impacts on Earth, like the one that killed the dinosaurs? Um, so we're still collecting data on that piece of it. But I have to say, like watching the videos um, from NASA that you can see online, it was very satisfying to see this mm. uh, spacecraft go so far and then just like smash into such a tiny target. Incredible accuracy. Incredible accuracy and such an extraordinarily long way. It's crazy that the dart in outer space is way more reliable than a train of the same name that's on rails in this country. Um, so talk to us about the, the science, um, uh, Jessamine. Why do we want to experiment with smashing up asteroids, apart from the fact that it looks like a huge amount of fun? Well, the main reason is to avoid these kind of asteroid impacts with Earth, right? So DART actually didn't have much of a scientific payload. It was really about navigating to this asteroid, crashing into it, and then trying to see like how much does the speed or the momentum or the trajectory of that asteroid change uh, once we've done that. And so that's going to be the goal now is observing that asteroid. And they specifically chose a binary asteroid system because it makes it easier to observe such a small target. They can actually look at how it passes in front of the larger rock and say, OK, like we're seeing these kind of small changes there. Um, but it's interesting to compare this to the Deep Impact project, which uh, crashed into a comet in 2005. That project was way more about like understanding the composition of comets, you know, understanding how they're structured, that kind of thing. Um, and the DART was really focused on if we smash this into this other thing, what happens and how does it change? And so it's going to be great to see the data coming in from that over the next little while. So this asteroid did not, despite the fact that it was presumably traveling quite quickly, did not vaporize the asteroid. It didn't vaporize the asteroid, um, and basically, like, it presumably made some sort of an impact crater on it. Um, and actually, there's going to be a follow-up mission that sends another spacecraft back to this asteroid just to observe. What's the relative size of the asteroid versus the spacecraft? 
So the asteroid's still substantially bigger than the spacecraft. Um, and that's that's part of what we're trying to look at with this is really like how big of a spacecraft do you need in order to cause a change in trajectory of the asteroid itself? Um, so some of like how big is the impact crater? How much is the, the asteroid changed by this collision? Those are still open questions at this point, but hopefully it's going to mean that if in the future we do spot an asteroid that's on a collision path with Earth, we'll know exactly what we need to do <laughs> and when we need to do it by in order to change that. So more smashing of asteroids in the future we can expect. Definitely. Awesome. Um, Ruth, our second story has to do with uh, a landmark treatment for Alzheimer's. Well, hopefully a landmark. I mean, that may, that may be a slightly overblown headline because Alzheimer's is a really complex disease that researchers have been struggling to make headway with treatments for decades. And, you know, part of that is because it's so complex. You know, there's two key proteins which are involved in the development and the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, one is called amyloid beta and the other is called tau. And while scientists know they're both involved, there's still a little bit of controversy as to exactly which role each of them plays. Uh, something called the amyloid hypothesis has kind of dominated the field. And that suggests that it's the amyloid beta that builds up first. And then that kicks off these lumps of tau protein, which ultimately kill and damage the neurons. Um, and, and it's been really difficult to get new drugs for this. And, and last year, the FDA very controversially approved a monoclonal antibody drug to attack that amyloid beta protein. And it was very controversial. And people resigned from the panel that approved it, because while it did seem to reduce the amount of amyloid in patients' brains, really only a very small subset showed any improvement in symptoms. And wow. people really felt it, it wasn't working. Uh, that, that came from a company called Biogen. Um, but this week, um, Azai Pharmaceuticals, a Japanese company alongside Biogen, have released the results of another new drug. It's another monoclonal antibody, and it also targets the amyloid protein. But this one seems to be much more promising. Um, and, and it was a big study. There was nearly 2,000 patients enrolled, and they were either given uh, this new drug, which is called lecanemab, or a placebo, and it was given as an infusion every two weeks. And, and looking at their cognitive ability, they actually, the, the decline in the patients that got the drug was 27% less than in the placebo. And while that doesn't seem like a lot over the course of 18 months, it, it's, it's the kind of thing that will enable people to continue to cook a meal, to pay their bills, to do very basic tasks, maybe for another 12 or 18 months. And this drug was given at the early stages of diagnosis. So scientists are hopeful that if, if it could be given even earlier, those results could be better again. Uh, yeah, I heard description of this being a moderate improvement. That sounds quite significant, 27%. That sounds great. And I suppose one of the other things that this discovery does is it gives us an idea as to what's going on, because sometimes drugs work and you're not quite sure why. This sort of narrows down the field of targeting for future drugs, right? Absolutely. I mean, some sometimes just are saying this kind of confirms the amyloid hypothesis. Others are saying it's too early to say. Weren't there questions if, about the amyloid hypothesis recently enough that this is the buildup of, of amyloid plaques, right? That's right. There was some controversy about images that appeared to have been been manipulated, which was looking at one particular variant of amyloid, which was controversial. I mean, it, it, I don't think it undermined the whole field of right. study. And certainly we, we understand that protein is important. I think the challenge here is this is a difficult drug to give people. I mean, an infusion every two weeks is going to be very expensive to administer. If we look at the improvement, it, the cognitive ability is looked at on an 18 point scale. And with Alzheimer's, we normally 
we see a decrease of about one point per year. Here, the change was 0.45 less than you would expect. So mm. I think there's still a question over, I mean, this is going to be very expensive. It's going to be difficult to administer. So I think it's still going to be challenging for healthcare providers and regulators to decide where to go next. But still, it is hope uh, with a disease which has been really, really intractable. So I think we have to celebrate that. Jess, our third story has to do with AI. That's right. And it's a real message in uh, reading headlines carefully, I think, because uh, this AI story, on the surface of it, it's about whether or not AI researchers themselves think that AI could produce catastrophic outcomes in this century on the level of all-out nuclear war. Um, and 36% of them, 36% of people that research AI, uh, supposedly, according to headlines, do think this is possible, um, which sounds quite extreme, right? Why, why are those people even researching that if they think it's going to cause something on the level of all-out nuclear war? Um, but what the study actually looked at, it was researchers from NYU who basically sent out a survey to anyone who had authored at least two uh, papers on computational linguistics between 2019 to 2022. Now, this is about like natural language processing. So it's like those those things that say, oh, I, I fed all the episodes of Friends into an AI and here's the script that it wrote, um, that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing, <laughs> which doesn't sound like it's going to produce all-out nuclear war. Um, but they asked all of these researchers what they thought about various factors in natural language processing, how that leads into AI. And the results overall were super interesting. Like 73% of them thought that labor automation from AI could lead to societal change on the same scale as like the industrial revolution, um, which is incredible to think about. Um, Nearly 90% of researchers thought that the overall impact of the field was very positive, both now and in the future. Um, But one of the things that I found really interesting in this was it also looked at what the researchers thought as well as what they think their colleagues think. It's kind of like, do you think this is going to lead to nuclear war? Do you think your friends think it's going to lead to nuclear war? Um, But they actually asked a lot of questions about ethics, right? And whether ethical and scientific considerations might conflict for for AI, but also, you know, for any scientific advance um, and what impact they thought ethical concerns should have on the direction of the field. And uh, in that sense, the study found that researchers actually felt that ethics was very important great. Uh, They actually thought that their colleagues didn't think it was as important as they thought it was. So in a way, it's really nice to share the results from the study because it's basically saying that, hey, actually, the whole AI community is very engaged with ethical issues. Um, And now they know that that's a shared value and something that that is being considered. You know, we don't just have mad scientists doing whatever they want at the risk of nuclear war. Um, But going back to the, the question that's getting the headlines, right, is it plausible that AI could produce catastrophic outcomes? And people saying, you know, potentially, yes. I mean, yeah, but we also know there's nuclear war risks um, that are plausible in this century as well. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't research nuclear energy and and nuclear science. So I think it's actually a very interesting study uh, that's come out from NYU. um, And it's great to see scientists so engaged in ethical issues. But it's been funny to see the headlines have been quite focused on the nuclear war piece. See, I'm kind of split on this, to be honest. I know a oh, really? lot of, um, yeah, because I know a lot of um, AI people say, uh, you know, like it's, it's really blown out of proportion. That's the, I hear, oh, no matter what it is, people say, yeah, that AI thing is blown out of proportion. And at the same time, you know, you do know that people are applying AI to all different sorts of systems. And there are, you know, the nuclear fallout um, version is obviously the scariest in the sort of war games um, Matthew Broderick's um, uh, scenario playing out in real life but there are lots of ways that if AI is allowed to make automated decisions in in real life uh, that disasters can happen on an individual and uh, societal or 
a system systemic level. I mean, I, I do think it's theoretically possible, but maybe I watch too many sci-fi movies. I um, think it's a good point, though, that, you know, focusing on the individual outcomes as well as the societal ones. So, I, you know, I think in follow-up questions, maybe that's something that they should focus on ethically. Well, we, 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 know, we know for sure that it's individually um, affecting people in terms of parole decisions and, and lots of other things where AI is given a given opportunity to refine an answer and that that often means a difference uh in 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 for example um uh, prison sentences it makes a big difference in someone's life um our final story uh has to do with babies ruth it's nice it to have does. an and finally with babies it is nice to have an and finally with babies and scientists and i guess probably any any parents won't be surprised to know scientists have pretty much presumed that the environment in the womb impacts on babies' sense of taste when they come out. Um, but this is the first study that actually looks at babies in the womb and, and tries to look at their reactions to different foods. So it's a study from researchers in the UK and France. And what they did was they took 4D ultrasound scans of 100 pregnant women to see how their babies reacted to different foods. And, and the two foods they decided to test were carrots, which are sweet, and then kale, which is bitter. Um, so the mums uh, were asked not to eat anything that had carrot or kale and not to eat before the experiment. Then they got a little capsule of concentrated flavour. And they found within minutes of, of this, uh, the, the mums eating the capsule, the babies faces changed in in the in the group uh, and you could see that they would laugh in response to the the carrot uh, and they grimace when they get kale so they don't like those bitter tastes when they're first exposed to them um, and there's very cute pictures online if you want to go and look at the 4d laughing and grimacing babies yeah you can see them on our twitter page twitter.com forward slash news talk science um it opens the door to a whole load of child experimentation doesn't it i mean we could we could get kids to, you know, watch different types of comedy and see, you know, what sort of what sort of jokes they found funny. We could uh, play music to kids and see, you know, which ones had rhythm. Absolutely. And, and I think and I think it even opens up a field to understand how well is a fetus doing? Are they actually distressed or are they in in a good place? Because, you know, it's clearly all these little emotions are going on from day one. And and again, while it's not surprising that the things that a mother eats has an, an impact, you know, on, on the baby. I think this really underlines how quickly those chemicals are passing, you know, from the mother down to the baby. So, you know, lots of interesting stuff here for future research. It'd be interesting to, to test like different types of junk food on on kids to see, you know, if you give a child pizza, do they like that? If you give a child, you know, a, a double whopper with cheese, will they will they laugh in the same way as they laugh with carrots? Well, you do think about food fussiness. I mean, I think a lot of people when they're pregnant, they actually don't feel like spicy and bitter yeah. foods. You know, a lot of people will report wanting to eat bland food and then maybe it's no surprise. That's what babies get used to in the womb. But but I think what the researchers, one of the things they want to do is they want to go back and they say, well, if we keep giving kale, will they get used to it? And will they right. acclimatize their taste? So it could also help to inform public health advice around uh, around pregnancy and how we can try and produce less fussy eaters when they come out. Was this research uh, sponsored by Big Kale? I don't think so. They didn't declare it if it was. <laughs> All right, Dr. Jasmine Fairfield from the University of Galway and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thank you as always. Now, um, recently, the Chinese government has been messing around with a new type of nuclear reactor, very different to the uranium facilities that we are used to. Although the idea is not particularly new, there is huge promise in thorium. 
So could these new thorium reactors be the answer to all of our current climate woes? Well, China certainly hopes so. The rest of the world will have to wait to find out. Simon Middleberg is Professor of Materials at the Nuclear Futures Institute in Bangor University. He joins me now. Uh, Simon, welcome to the programme. Um, if you wouldn't mind just explaining Uranian fission quickly, because I think a lot of us get it, but just re- refresh our memories in a couple of sentences or so, if you can, and then uh, tell us a little bit about thorium. Okay, so uranium fission. Um, so uranium is a big, heavy atom. It's got a, a nucleus in the middle of it. So atoms have got nuclei and then the electrons around it. It's got a big, wobbly nucleus. Um, and that nucleus, if you hit it with a neutron, it splits and it splits, releasing a load of energy. And that's the energy we turn to heat, boil water and make electricity out of steam and things like that. Now, thorium is also a big, wobbly atom, but thorium is it's very near to the uranium on the periodic table. But if you hit it with a neutron, it doesn't straight away split. It sort of grows a bit, and then it does a bit of decaying, and it turns into a new isotope of uranium, uranium-233, and that can then be used to make electricity, so to make energy so as, it, as it splits. So it's still fission. You're still splitting atoms. Thorium just does it in a slightly different way to uranium. And so is thorium then more stable in how, because that's the, the one of the problems with the uranium, right? It's not very stable and, and less predictable. Is thorium more stable and more predictable when you attempt to uh, get it to decay? No, I mean, uranium is predictable. That's the, that's the thing. I mean, right. we, we always worry about uranium, um, about it, you know, being dangerous and things like that. Uranium, we can dig it out the ground. We can dig thorium out the ground. The reason we can dig it out the ground is because it's been there for millions and billions of years since the Earth was created. So it's still there and it's still quite stable. Now, when it goes into a reactor, we, we typically put it into a reactor. In, uranium is a solid material, uranium oxide. That is then where the, all of the reactions occur. So with thorium, we've got a couple of options. We can put them into a solid fuel like we do with uranium dioxide, um, or we can stick it in as a molten salt. So instead of having a solid fuel, we have a liquid fuel. And that liquid fuel, that's what the Chinese are looking at. They're looking at different ways of, of accommodating your fuel. And whether or not that's safer or not, that depends on how it's engineered and how the, what the design is. So that's the aim, is to make a safer nuclear reactor by not having solid fuel, but by having a liquid fuel inside it. So so before we uh, find out what's happening in, in China, these uh, uh, nuclear uh, fuel rods, were uh, the, the fact that they were solid rods, um, made these meltdowns more likely to happen? Is that what you're saying? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. So you could, if they were solid, uh, solids could obviously melt if you go to a high enough temperature. With the liquids, they've already melted. So you've got a, you've already had your meltdown, but it's done in a safe and engineered way. So you take away that bit of stress in terms of in terms of reactor behavior. Now, having your uranium in a nice solid um, pellet or rod is good because as the uranium splits, it produces things called fission products. Though when it splits in half, it produces new elements. Those elements are radioactive, and it'd be good if we could keep them in one place without having to sort of pull them out and things like that. So having solid fuel is sometimes better than liquid fuel but if you've just got one less thing to worry about now of course if you're splitting thorium inside a thorium reactor a molten salt thorium reactor you're still producing those fission products you're still producing those new elements and what you need to do with a a thorium molten salt reactors you need some some way of removing those as you're operating it so that's that's one of the challenges with thorium molten salt reactors so tell us what exactly is happening in china Okay, so it's hard to tell. We they've gone a bit quiet on us, and I think um, I think the community 
and the, the, the worldwide nuclear community will see that. So what they were doing was uh, originally about a year ago, they were doing their testing of their, their new facility. What they would have done is they would have done a, a, a cold test to make sure all of the equipment works. Then they would have put the molten salt in, so this, this the molten salt, and then it would have heated it up, and they'd have done their hot testing. At that point, you can then load your fuel in there, and you can then work out, and then you could start your fusion uh, fission reaction. Sorry, those fission reactions is what keeps it hot and what makes an operating reactor operate. So we don't know whether they've got to that stage of fueling the reactor yet. We don't know if they had problems with the unfueled hot tests. Obviously, molten salts are a bit like uh, they're, they're they're quite corrosive if they solidify because salts. If you know, the whole point is that you know these these are high temperature reactors. If salts can solidify, just like your table salt, and if they did solidify, they would cause blockages and things like that. And they'll be going through some teething problems, understanding how to unblock pipes and possibly dealing with some quite significant corrosion issues. I imagine with 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 this reactor type. You make it sound very complicated, Simon. It's this. I, I make it sound complicated. I don't mean to. At the end of the day, what you're doing is you've got a big. Uh, with all reactors, you've got a big pot of material, uh, whether the fuel is solid or liquid. You're initiating the the fission reactions, which heat up a liquid, whether it's water or the salt itself, and then you just take that heat away and make steam. So, it, of course, if you get down to the nitty gritty of the physics behind it all, you can go as complicated as you like. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, it, it does sound complicated, and and I can see oh. why they may be having problems with it. But um, yeah. with, with thorium, you haven't given me a really good use case because obviously it costs a lot of money to put this sort of thing together, and China's working on thorium reactors because obviously things like Fukushima and so on. But why? choose thorium over uranium if you've got a it makes you make it sound like you've got to clean it all the time because it because this um the molten salt your sort of your troublesome products are coming out in the in the coolant all the time sounds like you've got to find a way of filtering that why would you bother with thorium uh, as opposed to uranium before i answer your question there's a couple of other other issues um obviously as i mentioned before thorium can't if you put a pure thorium reactor together it wouldn't do anything you need some uranium in there or some other neutron generator in there to turn that thorium into a fuel it's fertile not fissile so it, it's it you need to do some extra reactions with thorium to make it happen right. so these reactors aren't uranium three free they've, they've got uranium they will have some uranium in there or some plutonium in there which also produces neutrons right so that's another whether it's a problem or not it's just a fact you you need to do that um, thorium is very abundant, so there's a there's there's a very big push to go to thorium reactors, especially in China, where they ha- there is lots of thorium. Surprise, surprise, and they don't have as many uranium supplies set up. Now that's probably changing. They've, they've, I think they've found some uranium and they're, they're they're working out ways to extract it and things like that. So it's just a matter of supply. There's about as much thorium available on the planet as there is uranium. There's a little bit more. Um, but uranium's by no means scarce. Um, there's more uranium in the crust than there is tin, and we do lots of work with tin solders wow. and things like that. So it's, is it safe? It's I mean, there. it sounds like it's it's more complicated. We haven't figured it out. It, 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 we, there's not lots more of it than uh, there is of uranium, and it's also a, a tricky sort of substance. So is is it safer? Does it generate more energy? Is it more efficient? Why honestly cheaper? On, on, Honestly, it's not more safe. It, it could be made to be more efficient if you get these molten salt reactors working. You could also run these molten salt reactors on uranium as well, which is quite a feasible thing to do. So thorium is not the only thing you can run these molten salt reactors on. Whether it's cheaper, now uranium, we've got uranium markets, we've got mines, we know how to extract it, we know how to purify it. Yeah. We don't have that with thorium. We'd have to set all of the thorium 
markets up and all of the all of the development all of fuel fabrication processes and things like that so in that sense it's going to be a bit more expensive actually in the short term now whether or not it makes economic sense long term and whether people want to invest in that i think that's actually the question right now mm. um it, i mean it, 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 it sounds it, like it, i mean it, the, the list of reasons you've given me makes it sound like it was good reason why research into this was sort of mothballed in the united states back in the 60s so we were always worried about something called peak uranium. Have we found all the uranium we found? Are the mines going to be sufficient right. to continue to fuel reactors for 100 years, 200 years? And in the 80s and 90s, we thought we had reached peak uranium. And then we found more and we found more. And then we found lower grades of uranium, but it's much still economical to dig. And now, you know, some people say we've got enough uranium to fuel all of our reactors for sort of 2000 or so years, which is, you know, fine. It definitely gets us over that fission to fusion hump. Um, no, 2000 in, no in, 2000 years, in 2000 years, <laughs> I'll say it's 50 years away. <laughs> uh, we've been working on it hard enough now to at least call it 48 years. Now, I, I, there's, there's some fabulous work going on in fusion around the UK and around the world at the moment, which we're part of. And it is, I mean, they are moving now from a science experiment type of mentality where can we get this working in fusion? to an engineering experiment can we make it work effectively in a pragmatic way and that's exciting so I, again going back to whether or not thorium like you, 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 you make it sound like sort. you make it sound like i have no idea why the chinese are trying thorium and at the same time we're actually pretty close to solving fusion which would be a zillion times better so i well, i'm, I'm missing something do the chinese know something it's... you don't know i, I I, I I don't know is the answer to that. Uh -huh. sure, I hope I hope I, I hope they do. But um, <laughs> I, but the, the fact of the matter is, if you compare thorium to uranium, there, I, I can't think of any big pluses. That it's not more proliferation resistant. Things uh, people often talk about thorium being proliferation resistant, so you can't make nuclear weapons out of it. That's just not true. As if you're making something that's fissile, so thorium, you make uranium. That's how it works. Right. That uranium could be gone, go on to be used in clandestine ways. So it's not more. It's not more proliferation resistant. Is it more economical? It could be in the future if we de develop everything, but it's not right now. We've got a very well developed uranium market, and the reactors would need to be redeveloped. We've got very good reactors that run with uranium. So yeah, I I, I don't mean to I don't mean to sound negative, but it, you sound I, very negative. I, Can I just ask I, a I, geopolitical I, 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 um, question? Yeah. Would would um, China typically share how it's progressing with nuclear enrichment of? Whatever. I mean, like, in terms of nuclear energy programs, do you all, because you're all, you know, because it's energy as opposed to weapons, do you all sort of share your notes and say, oh, this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing, here are our results? Is it like, you know, you know, the particle physics where, where everybody's sharing? Or, or are there some people going, yeah, yeah, we're doing that. We're not telling you about that, though. There's, there's commercial sensitivities. Obviously, if it's something that's going to look like a commercial reactor at the end of the day, they'll want to lock it down. They want to, they will, we will want to be the ones that sell it to the world. Right. So commercial sensibilities, uh, sensitivities, of course. Now, if there's anything proliferation-wise, there's, there's obviously issues with that. And regardless of whether it's commercial sensitivities or something potentially, you know, clandestine, the IAEA, the nuclear watchdog, will be there and be watching and they will be invited to see what's going on yeah, if but they're not you, invited to couldn't see you what's build going on, like you know like in the in, in world war ii they built like cardboard airplanes and stuff to yeah, fuel the germans into bombing the cardboard airplanes and wasting their munitions when actually 
they weren't real airplanes at all and the real airplanes were hiding somewhere else. Could, could the Chinese have built something and they say, oh, here you go. I, 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 here, have a look around here. You're very welcome. And they're just, just, yeah, the, the exit is that way, not this way. Could they not do you, that? You, I mean, they could do that. That's what the IAEA, IAEA was set up to do with. The IAEA didn't exist um, back then. It was, it, was, it was a result of the proliferation risk and, and peaceful use of nuclear around the world and making sure people did use it in a peaceful way. Are we, so are, are it's we very not, difficult to hide a reality. But, but are we not in a different geopolitical space now? I mean, with, with Russia and everything, is it not likely that sort of adherence to these protocols may relax a bit? China might want to do its own thing. I mean, oh, yeah, is it I mean, theoretically fa- possible? Of course, it's possible. I, I think. I think. I think it's well above my pay grade, by the way. Yeah, um, I, I, I know. But I, you just, I, I mean, it's good I, to just have some conjecture I, I, every once course. in a while. Of, of course, I, I think with politics the way it's going at the moment, that's interesting. Um, but at the end of the day, this is a power program that they've got. Um, and at the end of the day, if they want to make money out of it, they're going to have to export it, or they'll use it in China. But it will be a very widely used technology. Yeah. So I don't see any reason for it to be secretive. That's it. It's not a military thing. It's just a test reactor. At the end of the day, then they're trying to see if something works. Now, they there might be some pride associated with it. I mean, they they came out last year and they said we're we're about to operate our molten salt reactor, and they presented it to the the Generation Four Forum, who are the people that look at advanced reactors around the the world at the moment, and 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 that was really that was really quite fantastic. And I expect what they'll do is in the next months, maybe years, they'll go back to the, those fora and they will talk to the IAEA. They'll they'll make big announcements saying that they've managed to crack it, and they've managed to make it work, and things like that. And that here are the problems because no engineering structure on the planet doesn't have problems you know if you build something for the first time you're always going to have something to change mm. it's just life so i imagine the quietness probably evolves from that 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 testing probably going through some teething problems rather than anything else okay well uh that's the the optimist in you i suppose there's a cynic in me but you, you're probably also better informed if thorium isn't the solution what what is the solution to climate change is there anything on the horizon closer than fusion that will get us there I think fusion's the big aim, and we should be pushing very hard, and we should work, be working towards that. There are some lovely intermediate steps that we can take, and molten salt reactors are potentially one of them. In the UK, we're looking at these things called high-temperature gas reactors, and instead of operating at, say, 300 degrees, which is what the light water reactors operate at, they can operate at 800, 900 degrees. And what you can do when you go to those very high temperatures is you open up all sorts of new chemistry. You can produce hydrogen from seawater um, and with that hydrogen you can decarbonize steel you can decarbonize concrete you can use that heat to make paper and all sorts of other highly polluting things paper is really bad polluted by the way um so yeah there's there's some all sorts of things so it's going to the next generation of, of fission reactors um in the meantime and using them for in other ways so co-generating electricity with other things right and we can make jet fuel out of thin air we could be capturing the co2 in the air so carbon negative and combining it with a bit of hydrogen from water and turning it in jet fuel plus a bit of oxygen. These chemistries are proven. This isn't pie-in-the-sky stuff. We just need the reactors to come online to be able to do it, and we need the economics to work as well. Economics is everything, as you know. How long away is is that idea of stripping hydrogen uh, at the plant to be able to use it as a fuel? Well, we could do it now. We could use it. We could use heat boosted electrolysis and things like that to go to the really efficient things. We need these high temperature gas reactors, HTGRs. We love an acronym in the nuclear industry. And they, we're developing that. It's actually been developed in the 70s and 80s. It's, it's 
old technology that's been modernized, I would say, because we never really did it in a commercial way before. So we're looking at the sort of early 2030s, mid 2030s to see that roll out. And we're working with the Japanese. So they're working very hard, hard on high temperature gas reactors and a few other nations around the world who are really, really very good at this. And don't forget, we built gas reactors in the UK throughout the last few decades and operated them. We're in a really good position to really take advantage of these new reactors. Okay, so that's 10 years away, and that'll just get us to fusion uh, if it's not 50 years away. Now, I I think what we do know is that there are now commercial companies doing fusion. And when there's commercial companies, there's stricter deadlines and there there are shareholders, basically. So I think we can be a bit more optimistic on fusion compared to what where we were even 10 years ago. Now, whether it happens between now and 2035, now and 2050, that's all the engineering challenge. And I think that's what keeps me in a job. Well, uh, Simon Middleberg, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Simon is Professor of Materials at the Nuclear Futures Institute at Bangor University. Thanks, Simon. Thank you very much. Now, Aidan Aiden McKelvey, our producer, I almost forgot your name there. Aidan McKelvey, our you producer. called me Adrian earlier. <laughs> I know. I just, I, it's just, my brain is terrible. That is just completely unreliable. Um, Aidan McKelvey joins us to go through some of your comments from last week. So uh, we were talking about longevity and, um, and Aubrey de Grey said that uh, the person today uh, that may live to 150 is already born. And he said that 10 years ago. He says, I haven't. I haven't changed my mind on that. I still think that's going to happen. He said that the advances we have made in terms of tackling many of the diseases we associate with aging uh, are, are incredible. Uh, Philip says, why would you want to live to 100? People only want mommy and daddy to live longer out of selfishness. Elderly people live their lives around medical appointments, no quality of life, the odd cream cake. Thanks, Philip. Did you see, Aiden, that video of this uh, 80-year-old guy in a wheelchair and some weird Spanish teenager comes up to him and says, I've had a really rough day. Do you want to go to Disneyland with me? And then he takes the, 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 guy, the, the American dad is like, what? And he goes, yeah, come with me. And he's like, are you joking? And he said, I'd love to go to Disneyland. So this old fella, he goes with this complete random stranger and they go to Disneyland for the day and you see these clips and he's like, whoa, I haven't been on a ride in diggity-doo years. <laughs> and he, he does all these things and at the end, he has this little monologue and he says, uh, this is one of the greatest days in my life. I, I thought my life was over. And then he says, you don't know what that means to me. You don't know. And I was like, oh my God, that poor fella. Like that, you know, at the end of life for a lot of people, it's just the monotony of it all. And this fella got to go to Disneyland. It was one of the greatest things that ever happened to him. And if you've ever been to Disneyland, you know that's extremely depressing as a concept. <laughs> uh, but, so, if you've been so, to Disney World, though, uh, <laughs> that's yeah. very good. Well, you know, I, I think he was in Disney World, <laughs> yeah. Florida's Disney World, yeah. But, um, you pedant. Um, <laughs> but, so the idea that um, you could live to 100 and be healthy and be able to do, you know, your Bikram and, and that sort of stuff, like then... Of course, you might want to live to 100, although I'm already quite jaded at 45. I don't know. Like, I mean, I've harped on about this before, probably on this podcast, certainly on the Double Team podcast, but I don't understand people who are like, oh, I wouldn't want to live to 100. That's great. Like, I mean, I get the I get the, the health thing if your health is poor, but that's a different question. Like, yeah. he's, what he's, what Aubrey Degree is trying to achieve is you're, you're healthier for longer. Yeah. So it's not like you're what your grandparents would have been at 60 for 40 years you'd hope it's maybe like any other time you get 100 years but again the last 10 to 5 years are 
bit dodgier. Isn't there, but even just culturally and socially, isn't there just, um, I'm trying to hold on with both fingers to everything new. It's just like newness is everywhere and just regeneration and, and whacking, like watching kids watch kids TV now, um, you know, just all of the cultural changes and then these mad waves of, of things that are happening around the world. I'm kind of holding on with both fingers to try and stay away from that person who goes, everything new is, is rubbish. <laughs> you know, uh, I wanted everything the way it used to be because obviously that is you turn into your dad and uh, a Tory and a conservative and imagine a world that was much better. So I'm a little overwhelmed with all the new things. Like I'm on Twitter and I'm seeing all the things that are happening, right? And there's some crazy shit happening in the world. Definitely. And, and so... At forty five, I'm I'm kind of like whoa, slow down with all the multi reference kind of stuff. Everything's just too much. Th- to go from there for another forty five years, like I-, I can't imagine holding on. My my limp finger's going to slip, and I'm going to go. Everybody, stop! Just stop for a second. I need to think. That's my concern. I, but are you're not curious to see what you don't want to see where that crazy shit goes. <laughs> but I think thirty years of that, like my brain's going to be churned up like butter. Well, I think the big question is people always say, oh, I wouldn't want to live that long. You know, like uh, like the Who famously had a song, uh, Hope I Die Before I Get Old. Now they're all old. They're not killing themselves. No, <laughs> you know? no. And I, the real question is, say, say, right, you were in an accident and the ambulance driver arrived and he goes, uh, okay, so um, you're you're terminally ill now. You're in trouble now. You're going to die. Or else I can give you this injection and you can live forever. Which do you want to do? Yeah. <laughs> like you're, almost everybody's got to go. I tell you what, I'll take that injection. <laughs> I do want to see the future. I just don't know. Want to, I don't know if I want to see it gradually. I'd much prefer to be like paused for fifty years and then woken back up. I don't think I want to. I, I think there's too much change and just enduring because the world is crazy right now. Can I take another thirty years of this mentally? But that would accentuate the, the the change if you yeah. froze yourself for thirty years. And yeah, you're like, but then, then it's, you're like, what's this? Oh, yeah, it's, but, a, it's a gajoogle. Do you not know, know what a gajoogle is? Yeah, but <laughs> I, I think I like that. And all science fiction movies that are based on this precept of of you know um, someone sleeping. They all work out great. So that's true. Um, that true. So that's what I want to do. <laughs> um, someone says, "I don't think they'd be finding a cure for all the different types of cancer anytime soon, or big farm would be put out of business." How about discussing the huge increase in autoimmune diseases like Crohn's, type one diabetes, chronic arthritis, other conditions like autism, ADHD, mental illness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, our environment has changed dramatically in the last uh, hundred years. I would say environment would be responsible for a lot of them, certainly type 1 diabetes, um, uh, chronic arthritis, like a lot of these conditions. Autism, it's difficult to measure fully how much autism I think there was in the general population before 50 years ago because we just put those people in jars and we said, you've got something wrong with you and we locked them up in rooms. Um, So, uh, you know, or or we said, oh, Sally, she's a bit funny in the head and that was it. Um, So, I find that, I find, you know, the mental illnesses, um, ADHD, autism, that, that, what, 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 has changed in terms of diagnosis um, and how we define them and also how we treat them. I found that a really fascinating subject that I'd like to do more on. Um, so we will discuss something about that, but I don't, I mean, I've met loads of people from pharma, right? And most of them are doctors. They start off in doctors or they're medical scientists or whatever. And the idea is that for, for most of them is, and I haven't met anyone for, who this isn't the case for, but I presume some people just do sales because they like a nice car. But almost every farmer person I've ever met really wants their products to work and make people healthier. I mean, that's that's a good thing, right? I like don't most, think that should be surprising. I, I know. And I, I mean, this idea of big farming... Look, I know absolutely there has been 
a huge amount of um, corruption in in pharma historically, and who knows, there may still be um, uh, corruption today. Um, probably not in the same levels because of the requirement of transparency. But there is a lot of there, there's idiots out there. But ninety nine point nine percent of people who work in healthcare really want to see people get better. That's really their motivation. That's my, my honest thoughts. Maybe I'm an optimist. Maybe I, I like to see the good in people. You're one of the sheeple. Aiden. You're I'm definitely not an optimist. <laughs> so so I think that means a lot. Maybe it would mean a lot coming from me, but it means a lot coming from Jonathan. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, maybe it is. Well, that's it. Um, thanks to our team, Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Ugo Da Silva, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.